what's going on on the Patreon? Well, we're interviewing Nikki Wolfuck, a author as well as a amazing chocolatier. It kind of reflects more of how I see things because I've been on the outside for so long in so many different communities and not feeling like I fit in. And so when I decided to create the chocolate company, I wanted to create a community. So that has always been like the first and foremost. So we find, you know, we have these adventures, we have these different flavors that we taste and, you know, we're, we're tapping into different places, different people and different experiences, but we're also coming together with this mutual understanding. And so that was my motivator. And so that's what I hope to bring when it comes to the chocolates. So if you want to get access to that episode now, that's patreon.com slash is it transphobic. This month, we're talking to my good friend and a cis ally, uh, Cleo Stiller. Cleo just celebrated her one-year pub anniversary of Modern Manhood, which is a really awesome book, which I, full disclosure, am featured in, as well as this podcast is featured in. So I figured as a fantastic cis ally, I wanted to give Cleo a little bit of space to talk about the the book, as well as her show, Sex Right Now. Uh, Incidentally, if you try and tell people in Facebook Messenger that they should watch sex right now, Facebook Messenger will stop their, <laughs> their message from going through as I found out trying to communicate with a friend. Uh, just a little funny thing. Uh, yeah, so enjoy this interview that I did with Cleo. Is It Transphobic? We'll be addressing issues of transphobia and transmisogyny. We may also address issues of racism, classism, ableism, and various other intersectional issues in this podcast. So this is a trigger warning. The panelists on Is It Transphobic will also use strong language. So listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. My name is Ashley Lauren Rogers. I am the creator and host of the Is It Transphobic podcast. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns. And today I'm being joined by Cleo Stiller. She, her pronouns, please. Yeah. So Cleo, uh, we have known each other for a little while now. We've known each other for, I think, a couple of years. A guest on your show that you had on, uh, it was Fusion TV, right? Yes. We're owned by Univision and Disney, and it was called Fusion. And you were on my show, and now I get to do the honors. Yeah, so things things are things are moving in a. I'm making a circular motion. You can't see this in the podcast. No, no, world. yes, but I see. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yes, we've gone full circle now. Yeah, tell folks a little bit about who you are, because I know obviously, like I know you as a host, I know you as a writer, I know you as a, a very talented person. But how would you describe yourself to someone if you were just meeting them? Um. Great. Okay. So I'm a very humble and kind human. And professionally speaking, I'm a Emmy Award and Peabody Award nominated journalist, television host, and now author. I cut my teeth covering financial news for Bloomberg um, and then moved over to Univision's network Fusion as a health correspondent for them was fortunate enough to get my own television show called Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller. And so um, my specialties are covering topics from money to sex. And the through line on 
everything that I talk about is um, I'm very good about getting people to open up about conversations and topics that are typically uncomfortable. So sex right now um, covered everything. Well, first of all, I'll say sex right now launched in, in 2014, which is only six years ago, but is dog years in terms of the way that the culture has shifted. And so like, here are some highlights, right? When 2014 happened and we launched the show, President Obama was still in office. The Supreme Court had just legalized same-sex marriage and Tinder, online dating, had just hit the mainstream. So it's kind of hard to imagine a world where that wasn't, we online dating wasn't the case, but Tinder only launched in 2011. So by 2014, the coast had fully adopted Tinder. And, and the middle parts of the country in the South and the North were just starting to get it. And people were like, oh my God, millennials, like the hookup generation, it's wild. <laughs> and now, you know, and they're, they have different notions about gender and body positivity and it's what's happening. So we launched the show Sex Right Now with this um, knowing that uh, in some ways technology and our shifting notions about gender identity and other um social connections were in some ways unprecedented uh, from previous generations. And we knew everyone was flocking to the internet to be like, is this normal? Are you doing, like, does this happen to anyone else? So that was the show. Um, we covered everything from reproductive rights, body confidence, gender identity, ran the gamut. That's how we met. Yeah. So, and it was funny because when I was telling people, oh, you know, go check out the show. It's going to be great. Uh, and they were like, oh, what's it called? I was like, sex right now. So just Google sex right now. <laughs> and <laughs> I was told immediately, no, I will not be doing that. <laughs> but yeah, like it was, uh, yeah. so it was, yeah. Was that, was that intentional? Was it like, just like a funny, like, oh, this is kind of funny. Like if people are talking about the show, what are you, oh, what are you doing? Oh, sex right now. Okay. <laughs> well, this was the thing. So it was a show for millennials and Gen Z. And also, of course, with the idea, we knew like baby boomers would watch a little bit, but I'm from a digital background. So I started doing digital video. This was a television show on cable, which is a totally different rodeo. And so actually the way that I came up with the show title, because with a television show, you have to think about the way that people are going to find you is through, they're flipping through the TV guide. And I was like, well, ain't no one going to go buy sex right now and not take a look. And I knew the show was freaking awesome. And once they drop, you know what they would go expecting? Like they were going to be expecting like midnight at the Oasis or something. But um, <laughs> the show was like, you know, a very um, intellectually rigorous and curious um, look at these intimate areas of our lives. And, and it, I would get tons of DMs over the years where people would be like, I admit that I went looking for something and I did not get what I thought I was looking for. But like, I love this show and I'm obsessed with it now. So... Yeah. yeah, no, and, and that's the thing, like, the quality of the show was, like, really well done, it was funny, it was engaging, and so it was one of those shows that you could just sort of, like, jump into, and especially, like you're saying, if you were looking for something specific, and maybe that wasn't the specific thing you were looking for, you would not be completely angry that you, yeah. with the product you did receive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. 
And um, not for nothing, but we got the Peabody Award nomination for that show, which is one of the highest honors you can get in the journalism world. So it was, you know, my dad, when he found out that I was hosting this show, he was like, "Uh, what happened? I thought you were really into international politics. And I was like, this is of a nature of that. Um, But I mean, yeah. So anyway. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, if you know international politics, yes. you probably know a thing about sex right yes. now. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about the, the Peabody Award nomination. Like, how did you find out? Was this a thing that, like, how did you react? Well, I mean, I will say when you work at a network that does serious news, and, you know, and I came up at Bloomberg, which is also pretty fairly financial news, but very serious. Um, when you do, quote unquote, softer content, and especially with a title like Sex Right Now, people know. So the show was the second highest rated show on the network. So the ratings were great, but we didn't necessarily think prestige was coming our way. Um, and yet, the, like I mentioned, the, I mean, we are very, we're very d- diligent and rigorous team on it. So we were like, you know what? We're going in on it. And we kind of had to convince the network to let us apply for all these awards. But we did. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was really steadfast about that. And so when we got the Peabody Award nomination, I, it was like a nor- picture it, New York, 2018. That's a Golden Girls reference, by the way. Um, but okay, so I've which I've been binging on. But all right, so I'm walking in New York with a normal day, totally cool. and um, my senior producer, who I love her, but she is a square. Like she's very buttoned up and polite. She's from Georgia. She, I get a text message her from her that says, "Holy fucking shit!" And I was like oh my God, is everything okay? Like all I could think was something really horrible had happened because she would never talk like that. And she just said, check your fucking email. And I was like, oh my God, I like, I got fired. It was something (laughs) even worse. Like it was so crazy. And in like, give me something. Oh my God. In the inbox. So all I could see was the subject line was Peabody award nomination. And I opened it up and it was us. Um, And it was totally, I mean, actually, I'm so glad you're asking me this because I'm reliving it emotionally. And it's really nice to do that during this dumpster year. Um, It was so (laughs) glorious, actually. I just felt like, you know, we all have these moments in our lives. Okay, and I want to know what yours would be, but like where... So many people will tell you no, or they'll make you feel like what you're doing um, isn't going to work, or for whatever reason is not a good idea. And you need to find like the confidence in yourself to just keep going. But when you can get an external validation of that level, it's epic. So that was pretty freaking cool. Yeah. What would be? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm curious, like, do you have a version of that? I got to think about that. I think, like, offhand, 
I, I think for me, uh, years and years ago, I was able to go to the Kennedy Center for the, uh, they, they have a playwriting intensive over the summer. And for me, I, I really feel like that was one of the big things for me, like for years and years in theater, I had always been the one who like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm playing like, uh, I got two lines in a play. So I would always have to say like, all right, I'm gonna make my own roles or especially as a trans woman in theater, like, oh, you can't play this character. You can't play that character. Yeah. And so it's like, all right, I'm just gonna do my own thing being that like person that has to start their own thing uh, and to be accepted to be brought out to Washington DC for two weeks and work under uh, Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights was just like for me that that's yeah. what that feels like for yeah. me. Yes, <laughs> That's like that feeling. I mean, I go to therapy so that I don't have to rely on that feeling as much, but when you do become externally validated for something that you work so hard on, it's like, that's a great, great thing right there. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, you don't always need the external validation. Doing it for yourself is absolutely the right thing, but having that external validation. That don't hurt. <laughs> I, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> no. No. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, like, for your your focus as a as a writer as a creator uh why do you go more for say nonfiction, more for journalism like what what attracted you to that field over any other field it's a really good question and i think i blame my parents because um my dad is a playwright and my mom is a dancer and or a choreographer i apologize um they are really different. She would just be horrified if I did that. Yeah. But um, honestly, in the fight world, like I talked to a bunch of people and they're like, oh no, I am a fight director. I am not a fight <laughs> choreographer. So I'm like, yep, nope. I, and you know what? Respect. Yes, absolutely. Uh, good friend, my good friend Nathan will yeah. yell at me if I say fight choreographer. So it's like, yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You are right. <laughs> what you want to be called, I will call you. So, so anyway, so she's a choreographer. Mm -hmm. And so obviously they're both in the arts and they had a really wonderful marriage. They have really wonderful marriage and I had a really wonderful childhood, but we really struggled for money. And I took away from that. I mean, my first job out of college, I worked at an investment firm. So if that tells you about how um, scary it was to me that to, to pursue a career that wouldn't make money, um, was. So I think uh, what ended up happening is I worked at the investment firm for four years and then uh, a boss took me aside and was like, uh, listen, you're smart. So, you know, whatever you do, you can make it work. And I don't want to be harsh here, but the metaphor I'm thinking of with you is like, if you keep doing this, it's going to be like putting your head through a brick wall. And I think you would be better doing a job where you're interacting with people more and less with uh, Excel and numbers. And it really hurt my feelings at the time, but he was absolutely correct. And so um, from there, I ended up getting into journalism. And as I said, I went right to Bloomberg doing financial news, but there was something I mean, like no one gets into journalism to make money, but it felt safer 
to me than something that is typically considered more creative. Um, and I don't, I don't, I have a different relationship to all of that now, but I, I do honestly think that that's why I was, af I was afraid of being a creative. I saw, I saw my parents really struggle. Yeah. No, and I, I definitely see that as like that, that want to be creative in a way, but still have some sort of grounding in both sex right now, as well as your book, Modern Manhood. Like, cause there is an artistry to that. There's a major artistry to both those, uh, both those pieces of media. And really, I think that's, that's a lot of why A, I connected with both of those pieces of media, but B, like why a lot of other people are able to easily connect with it. Yeah. And, oh, I'm yeah. so glad to hear that. Um, and I think another thing that's coming to mind is that I, I didn't feel I maybe it's different now, but at the time in journalism, I didn't feel like, you know, you and so many artist friends that I have like are driven to create um, in, a, in like a, from a start to finish kind of way that I've seen like my dad lock himself away for hours on end to do a play and, or my mom, a, a dance. And I didn't have that, but what I was really passionate about and still am are story is storytelling. And for me, journalism, you know, like I'm very good, like I said, at getting people to open up about topics that are usually a little uncomfortable and I'm very curious. So I like to ask a lot of questions and this is like the one job where they would pay me to ask people questions that when I was in kindergarten, for example, they called me impertinent. Got that. I used to get that. <laughs> impertinent. And I was like, well, just you wait. I'm going to be a journalist and then they're going to pay me to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. So let's so let's talk a little bit about your book, Modern Manhood. Uh, what inspired you? Because this is and correct me if I'm wrong. This is your first book after Sex Right Now uh, ended, correct? Yes, it was in my first project. So um, mm. it was actually very perfect timing. We were in the final season of Sex Right Now. Um, shooting airing yeah must have been i don't know okay so we were doing sex right now and 2017 happened harvey weinstein scandal hits the mainstream and a lot of men who watched my show started writing into me uh are you gonna do a season on this because i have so much to say about what's happening right now i'm kind of afraid to say anything because i don't want to get in trouble and then inevitably they would ask me a question and these would run the gamut from I'm single and I just got released back into the wild. I feel like the rules have drastically changed and I am terrified to approach women now. Or um, I'm a new parent and I just found out we're expecting a boy and I'm freaking out because I'm watching this Kavanaugh hearing. I'm reckoning my own behavior in college and now I've got to raise a son. Like what is a quote unquote good son? mean like what does that even mean anymore or bosses who would be like listen i don't want to cop to this on the record but i'll talk to you anonymously shit is fucking crazy right now and i don't really want to hire any new female staff it does not seem worth the risk and i sure as hell i'm not going to mentor my current female staff like absolutely not 
And these questions and statements are piling up in my inbox for like two years pretty much. And I was like, oh man, this is this is too big for me to handle, right? This is such like, this is a question of our time. Um, but it was frustrating because as these questions were piling up in my inbox, I was also um, invited to speak at or attending events that were organized for women and survivors where people were having these like, deeply profound and important conversations about the widespread implications of Me Too. And then inevitably they would look around the room and there would be no cis dudes. And then they would say, you see, where are the men? They don't care. And I know they do care and they are talking about it because they're all telling me like in the, you know, they'd be like, I'm, I'm on a group thread with my guy friends and we're all debating this, but like, none of us know what the hell is going on. Like, what do you think? And as a journalist, um, I don't, you know, like this medium I work in, I care less about what I think. And I'm really interested about what other people think. Um, and sort of crowdsourcing that information so that we as humans can empower ourselves to make better decisions. So it definitely would have been the next season of Sex Right Now, for sure. Um, but before that could happen, Simon & Schuster came to me about doing a book deal. And I was like, oh, God, okay. Um I haven't written a book and I'm going to like, I, so I proposed three different ideas and this one was way at the bottom because the other ones were like manageable. The book was going to be enough, you know? And then of course they were like, Oh, that one, that one at the bottom, we want that. One. And I, I honestly, I remember calling my mom and I remember being like, can I back out of this? Because like, Oh, writing a book. Have you, have you, seen the way that people get when they write books <laughs> <laughs> I, I i have a lot of friends in the publishing industry and so it is one of those things like yeah absolutely mm -hmm. i've never been able to successfully sit down and write a book yet but it is one of those things yeah yeah it's uh it's an intense process regardless of the genre regardless of what like yeah <laughs> i just feel like because television is very collaborative you know you go out and you're interviewing someone but you're shooting with your camera guy and your producer and you go back and you edit with an editor and graphics is very collaborative effort mm -hmm. i felt like i'm gonna look like ted kaczynski after this if i go away with my thoughts for this long and I probably kind of did um when my mom was like when simon and Schuster comes to you to do a book you do a book and so yeah. I signed the book deal and I will say writing a book is terrible, but so good luck to everyone. Um, but when you say terrible, what do you mean by terrible by just hard or like what brutal? I mean, just brutal, like brutal mm. because mm. it's, it's hard. And so you get, so, I mean, and, and I'm sure there are so many writers listening to your podcast who are like, they know exactly what I'm talking about. You lock yourself in your room all alone, day after day. Friends, going out to the park. No, you can't go. You're alone in your room with your thoughts. And then you have to get those thoughts down coherently on, on a page. And then this was the part that blew my mind, but it's so obvious. But it, so it, then I like wrote and it was coherent but it was brutally painful to read. And I realized, I was like, 
oh shit, I not only have to write this book, it has to be like good writing that's entertaining. Like you have to laugh a little bit, you have to cry a little bit with this stuff. Oh, sh oh my God. So, so that was just like, it was layers on layers of challenge for me. Um, and, you know, and dealing with topics that um, I will say modern manhood does not deal with anything illegal per se um, or physically violent. It's, it's not anything that would get you locked up. Um, because I felt like for me, the work that I wanted to do was what I was hearing from my audience, which was like the quote unquote gray areas that felt very unclear to them. I mean, like they could point at a Harvey Weinstein and being like, oh, I'm not that. So like, I'm good. Right. And it's like, no, there's actually so much more work to be done. And so everything we're talking about is the gray areas. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, cause that, that's still emotionally taxing and even just figuring out what are the, what are the areas that uh, fit in that gray area yeah. versus what are the areas I don't want to touch? What are the areas that this book is not about? Yeah. You still need to look into those because that you need to know what you're not putting in. I imagine. Exactly. Exactly. And it had to be, yeah, it's just a, mm -hmm. you know, I felt very passionately about the project. So I felt responsible to do well by everyone who, you know, open told me really something like painful, awkward, uncomfortable stories about their lives. Yeah. I wonder, did you face any either pushback or were you worried about pushback as a cis woman writing about manhood? Like, were, were you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Hell, hell yeah. <laughs> so... I worried, even before the book came out, I worried that I was going to get it kind of like coming and going. I thought that, not women, but I thought feminists would say, what are you fucking doing? Especially because I've committed most of my career to covering reproductive rights and, you know, extremely progressive topics that look at not just women, but everybody. But I thought that I would get it from like my core crew being like, ugh. What are you doing? And I thought I would certainly get it from men who would be like, what the fuck? What are you doing? Right? Um, so I will say when the book came out, actually, like the every question in every interview, and I've, I've done um, over 100 interviews for this book now, almost the everyone that is conducted by a cis man their first question will be like, so I got to ask you, like, why is a woman writing a book called Modern Manhood? And I am not offended by that question at all, because I think it's fair and um, I'm happy to answer it. The reason why I was a great candidate to write this book is one, because I'm trained as a journalist, which means like this was not one woman's opinion about what men should do, because I learned from interviewing so many men that they really do not like to be told what to do. So that's not what this book is. And that also um, is very helpful because I have in my career played in so many spaces that I knew what was being said about men at this exact point. And I knew, like, as I said, men told me, they were like, we're talking about this. We don't even know what the fuck is going on. And they were afraid that they weren't wanted in these other conversations. So it was like, I knew parallel conversations were happening and never the two should meet. And so 
I, as a human, like put aside my career as a human, see the opportunity we're in. I mean, and if you look this year, right, with BLM and anti-racism work, it's very similar where I feel that we are at a junction where people who were previously oblivious or just did not care, their eyes are open now. And we have an opportunity to up-level our behavior in some really fundamental ways. And what I don't want to happen is that they're sitting at the table now, but because no one will talk to them, they leave and nothing happens. And so I wrote this book in a really genuine attempt to bring multiple people to the table um, so hopefully we can move forward in a better way, you know? Oh, I know even in, uh, even in within the, the queer community, like we just released an episode uh, all about this show called Has Been Hotel. And one of the issues that we brought up uh, was that there are a lot of straight uh, allies who are kind of jumping in and speaking over a lot of queer voices. And it's tough because we want the allies to be there. We want them to amplify uh, the 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 if there are issues like what are those issues so that we know but at the same time there are a lot of issues within particularly in that case for that piece of media that really should be handled by uh the queer community yes and so it's it's it is tough finding that balance and and i think it becomes i mean i haven't seen the show and i just want to say also if you missed the episode it's spelled H-A-Z-B-I-N, which I think is very clever. Anyway, okay, so. I'm not gonna lie, I, I'm not gonna lie, I dig I dig that show. Yeah. I, I'm so excited for it to show up. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes because like that's the whole thing. Like we can only talk about the, the pilot was created for YouTube for right now and it just got optioned over the summer. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. But uh, immediately I'm excited, I'm here for it. So let's see where it goes. You're here for it. I'm for it. Okay, amazing. Well, <laughs> now I'm gonna add it to my list of things to watch. So this is good. Like for the conversation about gender, and how we're behaving, um, and specifically for manhood, there are so many conversations that have to be happening at the same time that not one can capture all of them, but one that is important is, and doesn't necessarily, I, like, it, I don't like to put a hierarchy on these things, but someone did need to talk to men who were feeling like, what the fuck is going on? And sort of be an ambassador and say like, okay, let's talk. And I was happy to do that because I could come to the table, not from a place of trauma. Um, I felt like there were some interviews I did with folks who are survivors who were like, how did you do that? And I would say, I would never expect you or a survivor who like to put yourself in that position, but because I'm not coming to it, I've got you. Like, you don't have to have this conversation. I will have this conversation. Where do allies fit? It's tricky, but someone has got to talk to them, you know? Yeah, well, and and we talked about this a little bit in, in my notes prior to recording. Um, there, There's this notion from a lot of folks, at least like it, for me, it immediately hit from within the, uh, the trans community right now. There's a lot of like, we don't use pronouns if we're cis, like the cis folk will say like, we don't use pronouns in this house. It's just like, I mean, you do, you just- Yeah. <laughs> are applying it to trans people. And I feel like it's a similar thing when we talk about gender. Yeah. Gender is only women. Gender is only feminism. Yeah. And 
it, it really like I don't know like I mean it was not a fully formed question when we were talking about it and I still don't necessarily have one but did you experience that with a lot of the the men and particularly uh, a lot of the, the the cis men that you were interviewing and talking about like did they have a good idea of gender and how gender was the gender expectations were being put on them or did they just think it was uh, a normal thing that just everyone has to deal with like what what are your what are your thoughts on that very vague and long question? Yeah, no, but I I know exactly what you mean. And like this is kind of like such a meaty yeah. point about doing this book. So this was really interesting, I will say. Like in the same way that there is no monolithic uh female experience and there is no there is no monolithic male experience. So one assumption I had that I think a lot of people will have is that the conversation about masculinity would fall very much along um, eight generation lines. Like if you were older and of an older generation, you're going to be more conservative about this conversation. And if you were younger, like millennial skewing, you would be more progressive. And where that did not turn out to be true is in this way that some of the men I interviewed who are in their 60s or 50s or 40s, they would, and I would, uh, to the question of like, how do you feel about being a, a quote unquote man? What does that mean to you? And they will say, listen, I don't have the language that younger people have to talk about this. Like when I was growing up, we didn't talk like this. So these words you throw around, like, I don't really know what they mean, but this feeling that I did not belong, I have had that always. There's this one concept that we talk about in, um, in the book and it's called the man box. And it's a concept that was developed in the seventies, um, by people who did men's work and then has since been updated, um, by a man named Tony Porter. He works with, he, he works with an, or, he founded an organization called A Call to Men. And he, you know, has contracts with like the NBA, the NFL, like he works with really prominent organizations that have very macho uh, reputations. And so in his work, the man box is a list of criteria that you must fit to be quote unquote, like an acceptable man. And here are some of these, here are some of them. Do not cry openly or express emotions with the exception of anger. Do not express weakness or fear. Demonstrate power and control, especially over women. Aggression and dominance, protector, do not be like a woman, heterosexual. Do not be, quote unquote, like a gay man. And there's a couple more. Makes decisions and does not need help. And so this idea of the man box, I will, having done this, this kind of work talking about gender and the impact of gender for many, many years, I, I hear about the man box and I'm like, oh yeah, duh. But for many men that I interviewed, when I talked to them about this and I read them that list and about this concept that if you didn't hit every one of those markers, you were out of the box and you were um, targeted growing up, that rung true to so many men. Even if they fit in the box, 
they were like, oh, that's, it was kind of like lifting a veil for them. And like I said, for that, you know, that was when I, and among generations that it wasn't like once you got to boomers or gen X, they were like, oh no, I've never had that before. They were like, oh no, I never fit in that box. And my life sucked because of that, but I didn't have the language for that. Okay. Okay. But so, yeah, your question of like, do, do men realize that gender is a thing? I think the fact that the man box was such a mind blowing concept for them just shows how most many men are, you know, believe that like they're genderless or they are of like their experience. Well, it's the norm. So they don't think about it as much um, unless you didn't fit in the box. And then you always felt that you always felt that. Yeah. I, I mean, like I can say, especially as a trans woman, uh, when you're growing up and you're being told like, oh, you know, you're, you're assigned male at birth, therefore you're a man, you know, you're, you're a boy and you'll be a man. Uh, and the, these expectations are so big. And then you try as hard as you can both to fill them, but also not to let people know that you don't actually fill a lot of these, these, this quota, this idea of like, and the the idea of like overcompensation and trying too hard to not show that you you don't fit within this box and like we we talk about like the man box a lot as like a uh like a a term not necessarily i don't know if it's from the same place but very much like that idea of like i definitely don't fit the man box is like a thing that a lot of trans folk will say oh i'm sure it's taken from the same spot then for sure and and i will say it was so important for me to do um, interviews with folks who are trans or from the queer community, because one thing that was really interesting is these questions about like revealing how much um, the system of gender is impressed upon us. These questions for folks who have grown up who are trans or part of the queer community, y'all have been dealing with this since you were born. And you have been working through it and doing the work and asking yourselves and checking with your friends, like, "Uh, what the fuck? And for folks, you know, cis straight guys, um, they were like, wait, what? Like, who do I open the door for? Who pays for the check? Like, in ways that, you know, they have so much to learn from people who have done the work since the day they were born. So we, yeah. I, uh, I I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. I was talking to uh, my cousin who is a, a cis gay man, and he was talking about how my aunt, his mother, uh, still doesn't quite understand who cooks yes. in their household. Yes. It's just like, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's just like I find it's that adorable awesome. because like because she's kind of because she's cool. It's just like okay, that's hilariously adorable. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, this is, and it's like honestly, I mean, the you know. What we, so I talked to Alex Schminder, who works for GLAAD um, and works on these really, like Alex helped produce Disclosure. Um, he worked on the reboot of The L Word, which I, sometimes, I'm curious what you thought of that. But, um, but Alex. I've heard mixed things. I'm interested to see it, but I've heard a mixture. No, I, 
the L word was okay. never my thing. I popped in every now okay. and again to watch some. I will, I will happily watch it. I just haven't no, prioritized it, unfortunately. Okay. But yeah, I, I will get around. Okay. <laughs> Damn. Well, all right. You'll let me know when. It's right. uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and Alex is a trans man. Um, and I, I talked to Alex about what masculinity meant for him. And one of his takeaways was really profound, and it comes at the end of the book. And, you know, the, the assumption was that most of the people reading Modern Manhood would be um, cis men. So for them, I wanted them to, to take this. That for Alex, having been born um, initially in a woman's body and, and now being a trans man, he was saying how he recommends people reading the book think about what are these um, qualities when you think of, of like a good man, you think strong, you think loyal, you think protector. And for Alex, Alex has always been those things, whether he was a man or prior. And that it becomes so clear when that is your experience that gender has nothing to do with these qualities, right? Um, and I, I just think like if every cis man could let that sink into their being, that these qualities um, we so admire about traditional masculinity have nothing to do with being a good man and everything to do with being a good person, you know? That's like the real takeaway of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I like that. Sorry, I, <laughs> I didn't have yeah. a follow-up to that. I was just like, yeah, no, I just kind of wanted to live yeah. in that for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just, just be a good person damn it all right <laughs> damn it yeah damn it that's that's the that's the point of the book be a good yeah. person damn it no. Probably the next project. yes <laughs> so like in the the research that you did and in the conversations that you had what did you find the most surprising mm. the most surprising is also the most saddening which is that um you know, having come from a background where I was often focusing on women identified, queer identified, non-binary stories, that talking to so, and, and not always, but often, um, those stories, you are, you are feeling the pain of not being born a cisgendered straight person. So I was su quite surprised and also extremely saddened to find how isolated and angry and alone cis men feel. The American uh, Psychological Association two years ago actually updated their official communication and ideology about masculinity. And they don't do this very often, so it's, it's important to note. Um, that traditional norms around masculinity, they say, are detrimental to the lives of men. And we know that lives that in the in this field, they're called um, deaths of despair. And these are deaths that are attributed to self-harm or addiction, drug or alcohol abuse are on the rise for men in a sort of astronomical way. It's very alarming. 
I'd heard little whispers of this, but I did not realize how pervasive it is. And it's heartbreaking because what kept coming up for me, coming from the background that I was coming from, was the saying, hurt people hurt people. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I am. Um, it just seems so clear. And again, another reason why I worked so hard in the book to make it accessible to so many, because I do like what we really learn through reporting. And if you read the book is that the system that we're in hurts all of us and no one gets out unscathed. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, I think that's why both when I sat down to read it, I, I really connected with it is this idea of like, A, I was not expecting to necessarily like, I don't know, like I was expecting it because I sat down and I knew what this book was going to be, but I, I don't know that I expected to really connect with a lot of the, the, the folks that you, you use the quotes of and, and really like reflect on that and say like, yeah, that I remember having to try and fit into this space. And I remember those feelings and that, that hurt. And like, I'm, I'm not a man, but at the same time, it is one of those things where like, when you are trying so hard to live up to these standards, these standards are made to yeah. be impossible. Yeah. And whew, whew. Whew. yeah. So now we talk yeah. about that. <laughs> well, I want to, yeah. yeah. Can I well, ask you, yeah. how did you feel yeah. when I asked if I could interview you for a project called Modern Manhood? Were you like a little like, I don't know about this? I mean, for me, like, and I'm, I'm, I, I think our listeners know I'm very like different than a lot of other folks, both trans and et cetera. But I mean, for me, I was excited about it because of a lot of those reasons, because uh, for me, for some people, they don't ever want to think about the life that they led, bef they led before they publicly yeah. transitioned and respect, absolute yeah. respect. For me, I think if there are people who are comfortable, like I am, talking about their life pre-transition, talking about what that understanding of yourself was and what you had to go through just trying to live to me i feel like someone like me would have been able to come out a lot earlier in their life and mm. so that's why i love and take pride in the fact that i am a trans woman uh, and that i am non-binary because it is something that like if you know if somebody if i had grown up with someone like me i hope I might have understood myself a lot earlier. I would have made, I would have asked the right questions mm. earlier. And yeah, so so for me, a, a project like this, talking about manhood, talking about masculinity, I don't think because I'm being included in this, you, you were asking me like, hey, yeah. you're a man. That's not what you're asking me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I do think, and this is a thing that I can say, but I feel like cis people shouldn't, that like talking to trans people about all genders the gender that they tried to fit into but weren't, et cetera, et cetera, is really beneficial because I do have a perspective. I don't have a cis perspective. Yeah. But you're gonna get a bunch of those. So like I but I do have a perspective on masculinity because I tried so hard to fit right. that mold. And I knew right. it wasn't me. Right. Mm. 
I'm a little, I'm a little glassy-eyed. That was nice. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and, and I will say, and I did, I tapped you specifically also for this podcast because one of the questions that came up over and over again was like, I'm just like, can I binge watch Louis C.K.? Like, can I listen to R. Kelly? And I was like, I mean, we got some really interesting perspectives on it, but I just, I mean, your podcast, this, you know, how do you engage with problematic art? Um, is is an important question in and of itself, but is also a proxy to how we engage with difficult conversations in every area of our lives. So I, I consider you an expert in the field. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And it was really nice because I, I am in the book. For, for people that don't know, like, yes, I am in the book. But like, it, it really is this question that you have to ask yourself, like, who is making money off of this art? how are you consuming it? Like there is, you know, I feel like people use the term, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism mm. as a way to just say that they want to do whatever the fuck they want. And you know mm -hmm. what? Yeah, you're right. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism at the same time. Like what are, are you buying things used? Are you doing things in a way that is not necessarily going to uh, make the person who's creating this problematic art profit? Yes. What, it, like, and I think that's really what it is, is like, look, also, if you grew up and like, so I, I love pro wrestling. Our listeners know that I love pro wrestling. It's just, it's a thing, but you can't really watch pro wrestling without thinking about, particularly WWE. They are making so much money off of Saudi Arabia right now. They're making so, like, literally after Jamal Khashoggi uh, was murdered, they went to Saudi Arabia, like, maybe two, three weeks afterward. <sighs> Yeah, like it's all all sorts of sh like, and I'm not saying that to say like, oh, they did nothing wrong. No, fuck them. Hold them accountable. But at the same time, like, <clears throat> I am gonna keep watching it because it's it's the thing. And at the time, AEW didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Not that I expect you to know AEW that much, but like, yeah. But if you're gonna watch wrestling, I recommend AEW. And you know, hey, like something's probably gonna come out about that. It's owned by the Khan family, another group of billionaires. So it's like, billionaires are gonna billionaire, but like. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. How did I not know about AEW? I'm looking it up right now. I'm like a like an amateur wrestling fan. Like I just like it from the side. But, oh um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> We will talk. You you should look up Nyla Rose, N-Y-L-A Rose. She is the first trans woman to uh, be signed on to a major wrestling organization. Um, she's amazing. Oh, I, wow. Uh, AEW? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 AEW right, is phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Anyway, but back to back to the discussion that we're talking about. We're talking about manhood. We're not talking about wrestling. <laughs> Right. Although, <laughs> let's talk about it. Yes. Well, I'm curious, uh, now that the, the book is pubbed, and obviously, whenever whenever you're sitting down to write a book, it takes a long time, and then it takes a lot longer to go through edits, and then it takes a lot longer for it to finally come out, and then it comes out, and then the world has changed even beyond the book. I'm curious, what are some things that have popped up after the book has come out that you either would have wanted to include in the book now are things that are just like so vastly either different or just interesting uh, that has come to your attention post-launch of the book? 
Okay, so my book launched before COVID, and um, I will say that the pandemic has sidelined many things related to the book, which is really devastating as an artist and a creator. More so than COVID, um, BLM and anti-racism work would have majorly impacted this project because we talk about race in the book and the book you know is many people who are folks of color black men in particular in in relation to the conversation about blm who are talking about how being black and a man obviously the intersectionality has impacted their perspective on this conversation so that's in there and it's critical that it be there but i think probably I don't know how I would have changed the book, but what I will say is that I am so aware of how parallel it is that people who were really un- oblivious about what, you know, so, cause what I heard for, for example, like the editor in chief of men's health, I was talking to him about um, modern manhood and he was saying how we were talking about how his magazine was covering a quote unquote, like post me Too worlds, right? Because everything about men's health really should be informed by this conversation. And he was saying how he was walking a fine line with his readers because generally what his readers were, and this is true for the men I interviewed as well, they were walking around like la, 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 and then me too and, and the associated conversations hit them like a, a bag of bricks. And they were like, wait, what? are you saying I have been making people uncomfortable my whole life and I didn't know, or I didn't realize how bad it was, how much it impacted them that people thought about this decades later? Like, I feel terrible. What do I do? But also this feeling of like, now I'm afraid to say anything, like, cause I don't want to get in trouble. And what are the new rules? What are the engagement? How can I help? How can I really help this, these questions? any white person or who does not who is not a person of color will so resonate with in conversations of this year Mm. um and i do i think probably you know people will ask me to partner often with someone who's doing anti-racist work now um which i'm very grateful to do but that feels like i'm just seeing so what we recommend with modern manhood is to understand, um, to get really clear on why you care about this issue. If you are a good man and you want to do better, then you have to hold to that because we are, there's no quick fix here. And there's really no maximalist advice because everyone is different and each situation has this micro change. So you're gonna fuck up and you're gonna be really uncomfortable but you have to do it and you just have to persevere for through this because we need to come out on the better side. And I feel that as a white person during this year and I mean, prior years, and it's this, this need to get com- to, to get comfortable being uncomfortable because we can't go back. I mean, we can, but we really should not. So, yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's, that's like in this year, that's really what, what is on my mind for the, for the book and the project. Yeah. Very cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to release this the way that we we're releasing. It's been kind of a whirlwind over COVID because with the whole self-isolation thing, uh, we've been able to literally record our entire season, an entire year's worth of material in a two-week period. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I am not. It was a very long two weeks. Are you Are you okay? Ashley, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't edited it all yet, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. How are you? Oh my gosh. Oh. I So okay, normally okay. normally how yeah. this works is I'll throw out a thing saying, "Hey, who wants to record uh within this two-week period, fill out the doodle, and then I'll maybe get nine people who will commit." And I'll say, "Okay, you're, we're going to do these dates." And then one person something will happen. The things happen. And so it's like, okay, me and one other person, maybe me and two other people. But we'll do like three episodes. And so then when I'm editing the last episode, I'll, I'll get, I'll send in another doodle. This one, everyone answered and everyone had availability. And I was just like, okay, oh, okay. I guess I'm planning out a season. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know what? That does not surprise me at all. People are like, oh, you want to talk to me? Can we connect? Can I look at you? Yes. <laughs> Happy to do it. Well, and honestly, yeah. that's why I, I'm using Squadcast more than Zencaster. We'll we'll finish up the interview anyway. But like that's like, but that's why I'm using Squadcast versus Zencaster because it's like, no, I can I can actually see you. Zencaster is just yeah. voice, and that's it's it's a lot. Anyway, um, so yeah, so for our Patreon, uh, for our Patreon subscribers, we're releasing this in November, uh, but it's not going out to the general public until December. So. Great. I'm trying to think of a good, like, bracing, jumping between November and December question. And I guess my big question then is, what are you thankful for? Now, that can be a, a big thing. It can be just, like, a small thing. It could be, like, Reese's Pieces. But, like, really, like, what what are you thankful for? Well, when quarantine started... I was lucky enough to find out that my insurance would cover therapy twice a week, which is a ridiculous, like, uh, privilege. And I am grateful that through the work I have been doing, I, my resilience is building up so that the doom that I'm sure we are all feeling if you if, if I feel of my like soul like an onion with various layers, I the doom can doesn't get me to the core to shut me down the way that it used to. I have more resilience within the layers. Um, and that's really important because I need I'm needed on the forefront with everything that's happening right now. And I'm able to show up in in ways that I haven't been in prior years. So I'm grateful for resilience and therapy. Yeah. Whenever anyone uses the onion analogy, all I can think is Shrek. And so now I've just got in my head this like inner <laughs> Shrek fighting off the doom. And it's just like, oh, I'm sorry. Wait, I'm sorry. Is the first Shrek or the second or the third? <laughs> Wait, say that I again. Don't know. Which which Shrek? I've seen the first, the first two. One. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. Ogres are like onions. Ogres are like onions. 
Oh, ogre, they like onions. Cleo is like an ogre. Yes, ogres are like Cleo. Yes, yes, that's very accurate. Oh, I think I think that's yeah. a that's a good place to to end it. That uh, somebody yeah. once told you the world was going to roll you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm making all the Shrek references for some reason. Anyway, uh... I I'm going to watch that tonight, and then I'm going to look up the Has Been Hotel YouTube pilot. Yeah, let me let me know what you think. It's 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 something <laughs> it's cool i yeah. love it anyway uh yeah so cool tell people how to find you on the internet if you want them to find you it's totally respectable to say i don't want people to find me <laughs> no i love when people find me so i'm on all the social platforms under cleo stiller like ben stiller and um my website is cleostiller.net and you can just shoot me an email um if you pick up the book let me know what part resonates the most for you because that's been like such a such a fulfilling part of the project as well to, to hear from folks. Very awesome. Yeah. And, and uh, if you're listening on Patreon, obviously, you know, to go to patreon.com slash is a transphobic to subscribe so that you can get these types of interviews a month early episodes a week before they go out to the public. Uh, you can also go to is a transphobic.com for me, as well as at is it transphobic on Instagram, as well as Twitter. Cleo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Is It Transphobic was produced, edited, and coordinated by Ashley Lauren Rogers. The original music you heard was all created by Vivian Aladrin, who you can find on Bandcamp at vivianaladrin.bandcamp.com.